Welcome, savvy investor, to Skyline Views. Welcome back to another episode of Skyline Views. I'm Chris Mills. Today we're talking Cincinnati and office investing. My guest today has 10 years of experience in real estate private equity. He's the president and co-founder of Excelsior Capital. Welcome, Brian Adams. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to have you. I think this is going to be a real interesting conversation today. Uh, let's jump in and uh, maybe you can introduce yourself a bit more, tell folks about your background and what you do. Sure. Yeah, happy to. So I'm uh, from upstate New York originally and went to college in Connecticut, small liberal arts school where I met my wife, who is from Nashville. So we did the Northeast thing for a little bit. We both went to grad school in Boston. And then like pretty much every Nashville girl ever, she wanted to move back home. So we've been here in Middle Tennessee for 15 years now. And I'm a recovering attorney. So initially practiced law for a couple of years here in Nashville. And my wife's family has a single family office. Um, and so I was very fortunate to immediately be able to get plugged into a lot of the private equity, commercial real estate, and alternative investing that the family was doing, which I had, frankly, really no exposure to previously. Um, so I started talking to some of the sponsors we were working with, the fund managers, et cetera, and just fell in love with real estate through that experience. Connected with my business partner, who's also a New York guy that married a Nashville girl. We started our firm 10 years ago. And, you know, over that time, we've grown up a portfolio of probably two and a half million square feet total um, across 12 markets. And these are all, I'm sure we'll get into it, but these are all what I call gross secondary markets. So think of places like Cincinnati, like Nashville, Kansas City, Tampa, not the New Yorks or the LAs or the Chicago's of the world um, growth markets. And we've done different things over the years, but Predominantly, our focus has been syndicating. So we raise capital on a deal-by-deal -deal basis to high net worth individuals, families, boutique wealth management firms, et cetera. And we really do three things. Capital preservation coupled with a nice passive income. Um, so you're getting a good cash on cash yield. And then we do a lot on the tax side to accentuate all the benefits that come from direct real estate ownership. We only work with taxable investors, which I think it's a really important distinction to make. We don't have any institutional LPs. Um, and so your kind of net of fees after tax returns is where we focus. Yeah, very good, very good. So for the, the office investing, it looks like you've kind of, you know, kind of found your niche there. Um, can you tell us uh, how and why you came upon that? Sure. So when we first got into the business, we were thinking through, okay, how can we differentiate ourselves from a product offering standpoint? And we really kind of reverse engineered it. So we went to our network of, of potential investors, my family included, and asked them kind of what they wanted uh, when they were looking to invest in private real estate. And the response we got back was yield, 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 and more yield. But when you dug a little bit deeper, they already had a lot of good offerings in triple net retail, um, multifamily, and even to some extent, some industrial. But what they didn't have exposure to is office. So oftentimes, these individuals or families, when they wanted exposure to that asset class, the way they got there was through a REIT, which I think is a really poor synthetic exposure mechanism, or through a fund of funds uh, vehicle. So a Blackstone or a Carlisle or a big KKR, which 
you know, very opa opaque fee structure, no relationship with the GP, and um, frankly, not really geared um, on a after-tax return basis. So it seemed like it was a space that that people wanted exposure to. And again, where cap rates were, we got into the business, we're able to achieve that kind of 10 to 12% cash on cash yield, which unfortunately is not doable any longer, but that's how we first got into office. And then, you know, suburban office really became our bread and butter. So out of call it $375 million of gross asset value across the portfolio, probably upwards of 90% of that is, is suburban office. Um, so that's kind of where we live and, and we've been able to carve out a nice niche there. Excellent. So in Cincinnati, uh, I've got some numbers here from CoStar and Real Capital Analytics. Uh, the development has been pretty light, uh, about 210,000 units over the past 12 month period. Um, towards the middle of this year, I believe. Uh, vacancy during this year, obviously we've had one heck of a year with COVID um, is up to about 11.6%. Um, the average rent is increasing 7.2% um, in the last year. Uh, and the average price has also, um, is, is kind of hovering flat, really it's down maybe a percent. So when you combine those things, it, it looks to me like, you know, office got hit just like a lot of these other sectors. Um, it got hit really hard. And the technology aspect of office, like a lot of things going virtual, a lot of people are kind of waiting to see how this shakes out to, you know, am I really still bullish on office, that kind of thing. But a lot of these people who are you know, the, the rents and price per square foot um, either going up or maintaining tells me that a lot of these investors are seeing the glasses half full. You know, maybe they're seeing through a lot of this stuff. You being one of those investors, can you uh, kind of give your sentiment as to, you know, the current state and, and maybe the near future or distant future of office? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a big question. So I'll try to parse it out through some kind of multiple answers. Sure. Um, on a high level, when you, when you think about office, pre-COVID, 4% of the workforce in America was, was working remote. And I think it's really important to draw a distinction between remote and work from home, right? Remote meant that you were not in the physical mothership office every day, that sometimes you were working out of a WeWork Maybe you're working out of home, maybe you were traveling a lot, and that counted towards your remote work. Very few people were actually working from home 100% of the time. Now, in a post-COVID world, do I think that number will increase more than 4%? Absolutely. I mean, I think it just makes a lot of sense. When you look at the survey data and the employee sentiment, people have enjoyed having more flexibility in their workday um, and their options. And I think employers are going to um, accommodate those desires. And what we saw up until um, COVID was this shift in the marketplace towards very dense, very expensive office layouts. So when you think about a WeWork in Midtown Manhattan, oftentimes they were going down to almost 100 square feet per user, maybe even 75 square feet per user, mm -hmm. where a traditional office layout is more like 350 square feet per user. I think even in a, in a post-COVID vaccinated world, 
the era of hoteling, benching, cramming in as many people as possible into these really expensive small spaces, the pendulum is going to swing the other way. And so when you have those two dynamics working in tandem, honestly, I think after the dust settles, it's going to be kind of a net neutral result where, you know, there will be a desire for more space per employee. Um, there'll be a desire for better um, transportation options to get to that space. Um, and honestly, if, if you're an employer and we're entering into kind of a recessionary period, or if you, you've experienced that over the last few months, your fixed cost of lease is usually somewhere around five to 10% of your operating expenses. It's a really good time to rethink how much you're spending on your physical plant and your physical space. So I do think you're going to see some people kind of ratchet down how much space they need. But when you put all together with the density requirements and that shift away from density, I think it'll be around a net neutral outcome where office will stay pretty consistent right now. I will say that if I was a landlord in uh, San Francisco or Manhattan or Seattle, and I had owned tower deals kind of in, in central business districts, I'd be a little bit worried about what the next five or 10 years look like. Now, I'm going to caveat my whole spiel by saying it's very difficult with commercial real estate because unlike a hotel where you can change rents every day or multifamily apartments where you can change rents sometimes every six months or 12 months, oftentimes office leases are five, seven, 10 plus years long. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this in our own portfolio the term, the weighted average lease term, which is kind of the average amount of time that you have on your rent roll, um, we're usually around north of five years. And so it's really difficult to portend what's going to happen in the space because you need to wait until leases roll, you renew those current tenants, you backfill them with a new tenant, and you kind of see what the environment looks like. So for us, what we've seen in the immediate effect has been slower lease renewals and you know a fairly muted environment for new lease activity it has picked up but for the most part a lot of employers are kind of in wait and see mode i do think with the vaccine coming out you'll start to see some more groups become more aggressive like you've seen with some of the tech companies like facebook and amazon taking down huge swaths of commercial real estate in really prime locations i do think you're going to see some some tenants try to be aggressive and get good deals while they can but I am biased, but I do not think that we're seeing a secular turn away from office like we did in retail, et cetera. It seems like collaboration, productivity, those also require in-person team-oriented functions. And it's going to be very difficult to keep a corporate culture or to start a corporate culture over Zoom. So that was probably a lot, but it is a big question and there's a lot of dynamics involved. Yeah. Yeah, I want to drill into a couple of the things you touched on. First, the the leasing dynamics. Do you see those holding, you know, the way things have been done in the past? Or are there any, you know, innovative ways that things could be done differently? Or maybe, a, you know, you've seen a couple instances where people have kind of gotten creative recently. Yeah. In terms of leasing, uh, what we've seen in our portfolio is... Um, if a tenant was coming up close to renewal, or maybe they were having difficulties because of COVID, as opposed to um, you know signing a new five-year extension, and 
asking for a big, what we call a TILC package, which is 10 improvement dollars and leasing commission. So think about your broker at JLL or Cushman or CBRE getting paid a big number to do that five-year extension. And then coupled with that, me as a landlord, I'm going to give them, you know, X amount of dollars to induce them to sign that long-term lease. And those dollars can go towards improving the space. What we've seen is kind of shorter term. So instead of five years, maybe you're doing a one or a two-year renewal and they're more carpet and paint. So we'll give a couple dollars in tenant improvement for, you know, them to, to repaint the lobby, repaint some of the spaces, maybe put in some new carpeting, et cetera. But that's kind of the trend that we're seeing um, play out within the, our own portfolio. And I think we continue to see that if you look at a market like New York, uh, real rents or asking rents are down 25 to 35% um, in that market. Um, now it's just not, you know, it's a very difficult time to go out and put a lot of money into office infrastructure. Um, but I do think we continue to be very bullish on suburban office in general because it checks a lot of boxes for employers that still want to maintain some kind of physical footprint. So that, that's kind of my long-winded answer to your question about what we see with the leasing world happening. Um, but there are some really cool things happening within technology in that space. Mm -hmm. um, I do think you're going to see kind of a flight to quality where people are going to want newer vintage buildings that have newer HVAC systems. Um, I think this is going to accelerate the shift mm -hmm. away from older kind of 80s or maybe early mid 90s vintage properties, they're going to start become fairly outdated pretty quickly as people kind of want assurances that their health and safety are top of mind. Gotcha. What are you seeing or uh, what are your sentiments regarding uh, the location? Meaning uh, not just the markets that we mentioned, um, you know, Cincinnati, Kansas City, et cetera, versus New York and San Francisco. But even in uh, in Cincinnati, right, you've got the more urban areas and then you've got the more suburban areas. Um, are you seeing any influx or, or outflow regarding interest? Yeah, so we have an investment thesis that we use to structure how we kind of deploy capital. And the investment thesis is, is grounded in an old saying within commercial real estate, which is, demographics are destiny. So where people are going and how demographics are trending will impact your commercial real estate investing. And even pre-COVID, millennials, which I barely qualify as one, I'm on the very kind of outer edge, but I do get there. Um, millennials, roughly 75 million people total, were the largest working population in American history. And because of 2008, there was a dynamic within this generation that... Um, a narrative on Wall Street was that they would never have children, they would never get married, they would live in a five-story walk-up in Brooklyn and eat avocado toast for the rest of their lives. <laughs> because of 2008, they just had a harder time getting to economic independence to allow them to have the family formation phase, but it's occurring. So it got pushed back about three to five years, but increasingly what we saw was these people getting married, having children, and making decisions about where they want to live, work, and play based on quality of life, cost of living, and access to single-family homes and education for their children. And like most generations, you know, we rebel against our parents and the way that we grew up until we have a family, and then we want the exact same uh, experience for our children that we had, which means a return to the suburbs. And so 
we saw this demographic shift playing out pre-COVID and like a lot of things with the pandemic, it really just accelerated that. And so we've seen a real uptick in single family home, apartments, um, self-storage, and those all really portend well for office because that just means bodies are moving to these locations. I think Cincinnati is a great example, right? It's quality of life, cost of living. It has an affordable single family housing market and they have excellent suburbs with really good schools. And that's where we target is we want to be in those locations. So for instance, in Cincy, we really like that I-71 corridor, right? I mean, we own an asset in Ash, uh, Blue Ash. We would love to buy more in that area. Um, and we can get into the dynamics of how we think about submarkets, but so we're seeing it play out in real time for single family and multifamily residential for sure. I mean, suburban homes are just going through the roof. We are confident that we're going to start seeing that play out and impact on the commercial side moving forward. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Let's do touch on the, the submarkets. How do you, uh, what are your criteria? Like how do you choose? Yeah. So uh, because we have this investment thesis about millennials and where they want to move eventually, um, we look at what we call million person plus MSAs. And MSA is kind of just a large metro area. Um, so when you look at million plus MSAs, but you take out the top 10 gateway markets, you're left with roughly 50 markets. Once we do the market analysis, we look at industries that are for the most part focused on meds and eds. So healthcare, education, government, things that are counter cyclical, um, things that we think will you know, be really resilient during a downturn. Once we get the industries right, we look at um, submarket data and submarkets are really just neighborhoods within greater MSAs. And when we look at submarkets, we like to see that they never experienced more than call it a 12% vacancy during the 2008 recession, which is our kind of most recent best stress test. Mm -hmm. um, COVID may be the next one that we can use in a few years, but that's the data that we crunch. So once we see that that submarket qualifies from a resiliency standpoint, we then look at, okay, are there, is there new development happening in that submarket? Where are real rents today? What are cap rates that we can buy? And what we're trying to solve for is not so much the, the cost um, relative to new construction, but what it would take for new leasing numbers in terms of per square foot to justify new speculative development. And so when you look at a market like Cincinnati and some of these suburban areas that I mentioned, your kind of best in class rent rates are going to be in the mid to high 20s per square foot. That's for, you know, class A, great buildings in a good area. And when you think about how much it's going to cost to build a competitive set of office buildings speculatively, you probably need to be in the upper $30 per square foot space. And that's with surface parking. Um, and so when you look at that, well, I've got $10 a square foot of, of Delta there. I feel really confident as a landlord that somebody's not going to throw up a couple hundred thousand square feet of spec development and take all of my tenants. That's the dynamic that we like to see. Now, does that mean we might miss out on some huge upside like a market like San Francisco? Yeah, but we're not chasing IRR. We're trying to chase capital preservation and a good coupon clipping yield. And so that's how we think about kind of submarkets. Generally, two submarkets in MSA will qualify for us. And once we find one we like, we try to scale by buying 
50 to 100,000 square foot buildings, kind of building out that 250 to 500,000 square foot presence within the submarket. So we have a little bit of scale, um, maybe have some kind of market conditions that we can take advantage of. So that's how we think about MSAs, submarkets, and then specific buildings themselves. Yeah, that's excellent. A lot of good information there. If someone wants to get into office investing, maybe pivoting from um, multifamily or something else they've been doing, if they want to kind of dip their toe in, what are some resources that you would point them to or maybe key metrics to look at or, or maybe differences to be aware of? Yeah. So you can go to our website, excelsorgp.com. We have a resources tab. We have blogs, webinars, thought pieces about office, et cetera. Um, and the really cool thing that COVID has allowed us to do is there's so much content out there that if you just spend a little bit of time on LinkedIn or podcasts, you can become maybe dangerously so, but you can become pretty proficient in the verbiage and the jargon and what to look for within any asset class, not just office, but certainly office. The things that I would really focus on when you're looking at an office deal is the reason some people don't like it is what you oftentimes get is um, a sponsor, a GP, underwriting a deal and not taking into, the, into account the amount of money it will take to renew or backfill a tenant. So the tenant improvement dollars and the leasing commissions, you know, they can kill your cash flow um, because you really want to maintain that stability. You want to maintain that occupancy, but you have to pay for it. So I would be really, you know, if you're looking at a deal, I would really drill down to, okay, what are the assumptions that the general partner is making in terms of how much it's going to cost to keep this thing at 85 or 90% full? Because what you often get is the first one or two years are great. And then once that rent roll starts rolling, unless they've reserved enough cash, they're going to have to cut distributions to pay for that stability. And you really don't want that, right? So that comes down to what are you paying on a per square foot basis going in? And what are you paying on a cap rate basis going in? Because when I've learned this the hard way, when you buy a building, you are stuck with that basis for the entire time that you own the building. You cannot get away from it. And so having um, you know, intentionality and being disciplined about what you're buying something for is great. And what you're going to find with suburban office is you know, generally the IRRs are pretty low. You're not going to hit big multiples. It's going to be a steady eddy type of investment. So if you see a deal with um, that has a huge IRR or a big multiple on it, or it's a value add lease up play, I'd be a little bit hesitant or I'd really want to make sure I'm double checking all the assumptions they're making because suburban office typically doesn't function like that. Um, it's just very hard to do in my opinion. Gotcha. Along those lines, what are some other questions a passive investor might ask uh, going into the GPLP relationship? Yeah, I, I think, and I've been doing this 10 years and I've certainly done it the wrong way, but um, being very clear on expectations on the front end will prevent a lot of heartburn and brain damage once you get into the relationship. So now I'm very transparent about what you expect from me on a monthly quarterly basis. You can expect monthly distributions, monthly financials. You can expect quarterly commentary, both on the market and the asset level. You can expect that if you write us a note or call, somebody within the organization will get back to you within 12 hours. 
We may not have the answer to your question. You may not be me personally, but somebody will respond to you. You can expect that I will not return your calls or emails on the weekends because that is my time with my family. Setting those expectations on the front end and asking those questions that sometimes you feel uncomfortable doing, both as a sponsor and investor, will save you a lot of time later on. Um, you know, understanding that we always hope to hit our cash on cash yield number, but it's not a bond. Quarter to quarter, there will be differential. Um, I think that's a big uh, misunderstanding that a lot of investors have is if I throw out, okay, I'm assuming a 10-year hold, we're going to project a, a average 10% cash on cash yield. That does not mean that your $100 is going to get $10 a year, right? That the wonderful thing about commercial real estate is that there is no scoreboard every day. So month to month, quarter to quarter, you can ask me hard questions. You can look at my financials. You can look at my reporting, but you should really kind of assess the investment probably on an annual basis on the shortest time frame, right? So it's, it is a long-term illiquid hold that you cannot exit very quickly. And there's reasons for that. And for the most part, they're pretty good because if you could just have sold our entire portfolio in May, you would have sold it at a steep discount. Well, now that the world is turning, the vaccine's coming, people are being more bullish on office, we're getting inbounds from people that want to buy our properties. Mm. So just take a breath, wait, think of it as a long-term hold. Those would be all the touch points that I would think about as a passive investor. Yeah, that's really good. I think both for, for what you do and what I do, you know, the, the boring stuff is, is better. Like keeping it boring is, is good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess closing out, uh, can you tell uh, the listeners a little bit more about how to find you and, and some of the stuff you mentioned already on your website? Yeah, I appreciate that. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you just Google kind of Brian C. Adams, Excelsior Capital, shoot me a note. I'm happy to talk. Um, you might get kind of what you pay for out of free advice, but I'm happy to give it to you. Um, and then if you go to the website, excelsorgp.com, you can sign up for our newsletter. And we do a lot of the content creation side. And a lot of it is kind of not associated with real estate. So we do things about personal finance, taxes, um, politics, other asset classes, other alternatives, just as a way to educate our network. So I would really encourage you to, or if you're listening to check it out, we have a lot of really good resources there. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you. This has been great, Brian. I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Skyline Views with Chris Mills. We hope you found this valuable and useful. Feel free to share it with friends or family that could benefit as well. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. We really appreciate it. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us through thehaneycompany.com. See you next time. The information provided in this episode is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. Skyline Views, The Haney Company, their employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are advised to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant for the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. 
past performance is not indicative of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Christopher Mills is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisor representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Neither Coastal Equities Incorporated nor Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated is affiliated with Skyline Views or The Haney Company. Advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, a U.S. SEC registered investment advisor, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801.